0: Yeah, good. It's raining outside. It's not raining in here. All right. It's finally gotten cold enough to wear a jacket. That's If you're fat, you get happy about that. I'm just saying, now I can cover it up. Now look, it's fat. It's great. I'm excited about being here with you today. I mean, yesterday we had a ton of people, over 150 people around our community, serving, serve day for us at Vortex and I just wanted to just celebrate that for a moment and share some of our wins. We had school projects yesterday going on, one at East Albemarle and one at Albemarle Middle School. You can drive by those churches or by after church, you can drive by those schools They're right next to us and see just how transformed those campuses are. But this is a moment that was captured yesterday. Uh, This is our children's pastor, Lindsey, and Riddick, who's one of our our kids, and they were serving in what you might not know is this little garden that's at East Albemarle was put in to uh, memorialize a young girl named Micah who tragically died a few years ago. But because the grounds are not kept up, that hadn't been kept up, and it was in some disrepair. And Lindsay and Riddick spent their entire time working there to restore that. We had groups around town that were serving and doing lawns. Uh, This is one on Smith Street here in Albemarle, and from what I understand, you couldn't see the front door. So elderly family and not able to get out and do much in their yard, and we showed up and were able to take care of that for them. And I I loved yesterday because I had to go around and hear people's stories and, you know, this is a picture of Blair and Jenny. They were serving at East Albemarle. They've been coming for a little while, and you know I see I see you guys coming in and then going out, and it was an opportunity for me to just to say, hey, I, I've seen you. Just can I know your story? And Blair goes, yeah, I've been coming to church about six months. And Jenny goes, no, she got saved six months ago, and she told all of her friends, y'all need to come with me. I was just thinking about how powerful that is. Too young. Ladies who could do anything they wanted to on a Saturday morning say, so I'm going to show up and serve. And the leaders at East said, Man, they were just workhorses. This is the kind of impact that we're having across the city. Yesterday, one of our leaders was at uh, the park downtown, Pancakes in the Park, and somebody was just walking by and they felt the Spirit of the Lord say, You need to go pray with them. And he just walked over and said, Hey, man, pray with you. And the guy said, Yeah. So what are the needs? What are you, what's going on in your life? He said, Well, I'm actually walking to my car. I'm about to head to a funeral. My grandson passed away. You know, there's something about us being able to say, I'm, I'm going to set aside my agenda, my Saturday, and I'm here to serve. And we got to do that yesterday as a church. And man, there are so many stories that we've heard from across the city. So thankful for the many of you who have prayed over homes and businesses and served on projects and helped build a habitat house and all of these things that were happening, we made a difference. We're going to keep making a difference. Today we're going to continue in our little study of Nehemiah. We're going to go to Nehemiah chapter 2, and as per usual with me, I'm going to invite you to stand as we read the Word of the Lord, just in honor of God's Word. So would you stand? Beginning in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 11. I went to Jerusalem and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. Then I said to them, you see we're in great trouble, right? Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me and they replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when sin ballot the horn, the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it. They mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? And I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We are his servants and we will be rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any historic claim to it. So, now, To chapter 4, so we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height for the people worked with all their heart but when Samballot, Tobiah the Arabs, the Ammonites and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry And they all plotted to come together and to fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. From that day on, half of my men did the work while the other half were equipped with spears and shields and bows and armor. The officers posted themselves behind All the people of Judah who were building the wall, those who carried the materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. Let's pray as we get ready to dive in. Father God, today would you expose the unseen war against our hearts and minds. The enemy who has tried to distract our heart and destroy our life and empower us in this moment to fight back. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen, amen, amen. Touch your neighbor as you take a seat and say, it's time to carry a sword. Now look at them and say, do you know how to carry a sword? Anybody in here actually have a sword? I don't have one. Last week, I opened by talking about how, like Nehemiah, who felt called to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls that had been destroyed, my wife and I felt called to Albemarle over 11 years ago. Our church last week celebrated its 11th birthday. And you move back in that moment thinking, man, this is going to be great. This is going to be awesome. We're going to see so many lives that are changed. As a matter of fact, in our launch team meetings, we used to say this to each other. We are called to love the hell out of some people. Literally. Because we know God's going to send us some people who are filled with hell, who are filled with selfishness, who are filled with sin, and it's our job to love them so well that the Spirit of God would invade their souls, their hearts, their minds. But what we didn't realize, so when you start praying those kinds of prayers, God's going to fill the room with a bunch of people who have issues, and no offense, He still does. You have your issues, and so do I. A room filled with people who have issues or sin means that in the context of a community like this, there's going to be Betrayal and manipulation and sin. And because of that, there will be hurt. You don't think about that on the front end, but it certainly is a part of the process. And I want to make an observation as we get started today that Nehemiah finds to be true in the passage that we just read. Number one, you have an enemy. You in your life you have an enemy. I use the term the enemy. The Bible uses a lot of terms to describe our enemy, the devil, the thief, Satan, the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, the God of this world, the dragon in Revelation chapter 12. And sometimes we think, well, overtly the Enemies probably at work, and I mean, he's got to be behind like fentanyl and heroin and like regime changes around the world. But you know, I mean, I'm not sure I've seen the work of the enemy in our life because we focus on great cataclysmic events like that. But but I want to make an observation about your relationship to the enemy. The enemy hates you because God loves you and he hates God. You are an object of God's affection. You are what God loves, adores, has pursued. God wants a relationship with you. And because you are so dearly loved by God, The enemy who hates God hates you. Now I shared this with our staff not too long ago and several members of our staff were like, I have never thought of it that way because when I hear somebody hates me, I start to think about them differently. It is not just some casual thing. The enemy hates you. Jesus put it this way in John 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that they may have life have it in abundance to the full till it overflows. We do not like this reality. Most of us would love to live life where all we see is all we know. Where this tangible, physical life is the only existence I actually have to think about or worry about. But you have an enemy. And number two in your notes... That enemy wants to distract your heart and destroy your life. This is not subtle. This is not easy. This is not casual. Jesus in John 10, which we read just a moment ago, the plan is to take you out. He said the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. And so many of us think about that phrase and cataclysmic ways like it's only in the epic falls that we see but what if the enemy's tactic for you is a lot more subtle what if it's to steal your attention kill your time and destroy your future I mean most of us think well I'm just I I, I know I just wasted two hours watching that TV show. It's not very good for me. I get it. I know I just spent 45 minutes scrolling through Instagram reels. But how harmful is that? You know, the attacks of the enemy in our lives are actually based in lies. In John chapter 8, Jesus is talking about the enemy. And he says, The enemy is the father of lies go so far in verse 44 to say that when the enemy lies he's speaking his native tongue because this is all he knows how to do and one of the goals of the enemy is to distract you to distract your heart and we are distracted because we've believed a lie about what's most important Some of you have believed a lie that says that your marriage is the most important thing in life. That your kids are the most important thing in life. That your career is the most important thing in life. Some of us have believed a lie about what's most important. Y'all listen to me. The enemy... Wants to distract your heart. And the enemy can take a good thing and turn it into a God thing. And when the enemy does that, something that's good becomes your God. You become distracted and eventually you will be destroyed. The enemy hates you. Because God loves you, and God loves you so much that he wants a relationship with you. He gave his son as a sacrifice to form that relationship. Because outside of that reconciliation, we'd never be able to have that relationship with God. And the enemy wants to disrupt what God wants. So I can say this, and you need to hear this. Number three, the enemy will use every mean and method available to destroy your life every mean every method available and for some of us that has been addiction it has been the, the things that culturally we would label as the the big things but for many of us it's so much more covert than that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul is addressing something that's happening in the Corinthian church. They have some people, in those days, in a, it, it was kind of normal for somebody to kind of come in and teach the church and then leave, and then come in and teach the church and then leave. And a lot of times, they just kind of knew that person because they were referred. Like, oh yeah, I'm here, I know the Apostle Paul, you know the Apostle Paul, we know. All right, so there were some issues with people coming in who were not really teaching good things. And the Apostle Paul is addressing this in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, These people are false apostles, deceitful workers who disguise themselves as apostles of Christ, but I'm not surprised even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Look at what he's saying. Well, I'm not surprised that something would look good, but in the end, it wouldn't be good because this is a tactic of the enemy. The enemy will disguise himself as something that appears good. This is so overt in our culture, perhaps in no other place than in the way that we deal with our kids. There are so many families that are not centered on Christ. They're centered on their kids. Okay? So it's not when God says move, we move. It's when the kids say move that we move. It's not when God says jump, we jump. It's when the kids say jump. We ebb and move because of what we interpret our kids to need. The kids are the epicenter of the home, which is taking a good thing and turning it into a God thing. And you can see the evidence of this, you know, when your kids start making bad decisions. Which we've had, okay? You get that call from the school and you're like, crushed. Can't believe this. I feel like my whole world is crumbling. Really? Or the inverse, which is often true those dang kids are so darn cute. (laughs) They're so sweet. They're so fun. I feel so loved and affirmed when I'm around them. They're my world. They're my heart. And all that does is expose that they're the center of our universe. They've taken a good thing and turned it into a God thing. Now listen to me. The enemy has an evil plot against you. God has a plan for your life, but the enemy has a plot to steal everything the God wants to give you. Ephesians 6 talks about the armor of God, what we put on to fight the enemy. And it talks about, we we put this on in verse 11 so that we can stand against the schemes of the enemy because the enemy has a plot to take you out. But there's a comma in that sentence followed by the words, but God. How many of y'all have a but God moment in your life? It was all going this way. But God showed up. And then all of a sudden, he reconciled me. He changed things. He delivered me. He got me out of that mess. But God, I love this moment in Genesis chapter 50. Joseph has been sold into slavery. He's been beaten, imprisoned, and he's risen to second in command in Egypt. And you want to know what? His brothers who sold him into slavery are now impoverished and in need and show up needing him to help. And he says to them in Genesis 50 verse 20, What you intended to harm me, God intended to use it for good. There's some but God moments. I want you to know that you might even be in the middle of an attack right now. But God, God can take something that was meant to destroy you and turn it into something that actually causes you to grow and to build the kingdom of God in your life. Nehemiah, moving back to Jerusalem to begin rebuilding the wall, he experiences resistance In the form of three guys, Samballot, Tobiah, and Geshem. I don't see a lot of uh, parents naming their little boys Samballot, Tobiah, and Geshem. Okay, because these are not guys (laughs) that really, if you look at the span of the text of Nehemiah, these are not admirable men. They're leaders in the neighboring communities. And they're resisting the rebuilding efforts in Jerusalem. They start by just talking trash. The end of chapter 2, these guys show up for the first time. They're like, Nehemiah, what you doing? Are you moving against the king? And I love what Nehemiah says. It's so, like, hey, he doesn't even reference the king. He's a cupbearer to the king. They're on the king's request. And he says, no, we're servants of God Here to do that. You have no claim on Jerusalem. You can shut your mouth. I mean, Nehemiah's a bad man, y'all. I want you to see that today. And then we find out that these men get angry when this starts to unfold. The wall was half built, and they find out that they're planning to attack. Now, I want to make an observation that you need to see, okay? These men, Samballot, Tobiah, Geshem, they were leaders in surrounding communities. And Jerusalem rebuilding the wall was a threat to their community. So the people in their community would have looked at these guys and said, those are good men. They're good men. They're trying to protect us. They're trying to take care of us. But good men became the enemies of God's work trying to protect their kingdoms. And today, in our day and age, good men become enemies of God's work trying to protect their kingdoms. Don't think it can't be you because it surely can even be me. Here's the big idea for today. This is a big idea, and I want you to kind of spend some moments developing this for you. The enemy can use good to accomplish evil. The enemy, I said that right, the enemy can use good to accomplish evil. See, we focus on the overt schemes, fentanyl, the heroin, But I want to point you today to some more subtle schemes. Now, before we get started, I have to make an observation about good. Not everything is good. Okay? In life, there are some things that are amoral, which means the thing is neither good nor bad. What makes it good or bad is how we interact with it. And then other things are blatantly sinful and evil. There's some things God has already classified. That is evil. Do not do that. Flee that. Get away from that. And God has given us strategies for how to deal with those things. If it's blatantly sinful or evil, we run. The Bible says to flee the appearance of evil. But for too many of us, we we can draw a line in the middle of our life and know, Over there is sin, and over there is doing God's way. And we just try to think, how close can I get to that line without going over it? And God's like, you got that all wrong. Don't don't try to get close. Run away. Run away. When it's evil, and this is not God trying to rob you of fun and keep you from doing what you want. This is God trying to protect you. Run away from it. But then stuff that's amoral, how do we do that? What's the strategy is that we manage it. This is why the term stewardship in the Bible is used so much. We are to manage these things because if we don't manage them, according to God's direction, they will become bad things in our lives. An example of this is, is money. Money is amoral. Too many of us have heard that money's evil. Money is not evil. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 6.10 that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Money, while it can be used to do evil things, it can also be used to do good things. And when it comes to your financial resources that God has blessed you with, you will either use it for God's purposes or it will use you for other purposes. This is why God consistently points us to generosity because generosity orients our heart as to who the source is. We manage it that way and it doesn't become a bad thing, but it can become a bad thing. I want to make two observations when it comes to that simple truth that the enemy can use good to accomplish evil to kind of give some more flesh to that. Number one, the enemy distracts our hearts and destroys our lives With good things. So there are things that are evil, there are things that are amoral, but then there are good things in life, and the enemy can distract our hearts and destroy our lives with good things. Because here's what happens when you take something that is good and you elevate it to a God, it will destroy your life. Remember, we read out of 2 Corinthians 11. That Satan will come disguised as an angel of light. You know what angels are? Angels are ministering spirits dispatched by God. And Paul is saying, no, listen. There is something that could appear to be good, but it's going to lead you to death. Two times in the book of Proverbs, it says there is a way that seems right to a man but the end of which is death. See, God's not trying to just keep you from doing the stuff you want to. God's after your heart. He wants a loving relationship with you, but so is the enemy. And the enemy will use good things to accomplish evil purposes. You might be saying, well, what are those good things? What are some some examples of good things in our our friendships, our relationships, good things? Marriage, good thing. Having some kids, good thing. Having a career and a calling or starting a business that you feel called to do. Like, those are good things. I mean, even having hobbies is a good thing. But when that good thing becomes a God thing, the enemy can distract your heart. And if the enemy can distract your heart, he can ruin your life. In John 14 6 jesus said this is so bold i am the way i am the truth i am the life the only way you get to the father is through me which means you can try to think about well i feel most alive when i'm or i love it when i'm or this is something that i'm super passionate about listen jesus is life he makes it so overtly simple that he is the path towards life. Y'all listen to me. All other plans that we think are going to get us life are not plans. They're plots from the enemy to destroy your life. The enemy will use good things to distract our hearts and destroy our lives. And then number two, the enemy uses good people to distract and destroy lives. The enemy will use good people. and This is one of the most difficult things for us to realize in the schemes that the enemy has to come against us. Now you've heard me quote before Jesus' question, hey good teacher, and he just stops the question, why you call me good? Only God is good. And you've heard me say, like, we are not good. God alone is good. But what I mean by that is that God alone is perfectly good. We are in a process of progressively getting more good. Galatians 5 talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And look at what it says. The Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So God is at work in our lives as God works through us to make us a little bit more good and a little bit more good and a little bit more good. But as good as I am, I'm not perfectly good. We were talking about this message this week, and I just looked at Jen. If you know Jen, is on staff, it's like, Jen, you're the nicest person I've ever known in my entire life. Like, I meet you, and I think that there's never a moment that you're not nice. But there are moments she's not nice, y'all, okay? There are some There are some moments none of us is perfectly nice. See, unlike us, God is perfectly good. Perfect. All the time. All the time hospitable. All the time gracious. All the time loving. And we, no matter how good we are, we will never be perfectly good. Which means sometimes... Our imperfections collide with opportunities for other people to be tripped up. Matthew 16 has always been a wake up call for me. It's a, a passage that is dealing with Jesus and his followers. And he asks them, Hey, hey, who do y'all think I am? And Peter says, You're the Messiah, you're the Son of God. And in that moment, Jesus responds to Peter, Peter, you didn't figure that out on your own, which is maybe an insult, all right, to Peter. You're not smart enough to figure that out on your own. That was my Father in heaven that revealed that to you, which in a sense Jesus is saying, Peter, in this moment you're a prophet. You just prophesied something from God. But immediately after that moment, Jesus goes on to predict his death. And Peter interrupts him in verse 22. Now, it's verse 16 that he says, you're the Messiah. But in verse 22, he interrupts him, Lord, don't let it be so. And Jesus looks, in verse 23, he looks at Peter, who he just called a prophet, and he says, get behind me, Satan. So in seven verses, Peter went from being a prophet to being Satan. Because we're not perfectly good, the enemy can use our imperfections to tempt and attack others close to us. Can I just say this? I believe this is why the hallmark of a mature believer is that we hold loosely to being right, we are willing to ask for forgiveness. We're willing to admit that maybe even with good intentions, we made a mistake. To live with grace and mercy. So let's go back to Nehemiah. They've started rebuilding the wall, they find out that they're under attack. The people he, he wants to protect in the project that they have began to build is now at risk. And I want you today to watch what Nehemiah does to fight back against the enemy because it lays the groundwork for us to understand in our lives how to fight back. From then on, only half my men worked while the other half stood guard with shields and spears and boats and coats of mail or armor. The leaders stationed themselves behind the people of Judah who were building the wall. Two observations. Nehemiah cuts his workforce in half to put half of his workforce now on guard. And then the leaders, it seems like they're afraid, but that's not what it is. By stationing themselves behind the workers, if there's an attack, they can direct the counterattack. The laborers, next verse, carried on their work with one hand supporting their load. So they're working with one and with one hand holding a weapon. All the builders had a sword belted their side, and the trumpeters stayed with me to sound the alarm. I want to go through what we just read, and I'll point out a few things that we need to do in our own lives to be prepared against the attack that the enemy has planned against your life. God has a plan. The enemy has a plot. How do we fight back? Number one, be on guard. Be on guard. Nehemiah posts armed guards around those who are working. He takes half of his workforce to devote to this. That's a significant investment to being able to be on guard. It's so important for us personally then We fast forward to the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 5. Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Stay alert. Be on the lookout. Let me just ask you this. What are you looking for? In life, what are you looking for? Some of y'all, maybe you're a wife in here and you're looking for, who's that lady going to steal my man, right? And you want to know what? You start looking for that, and all of a sudden it's that girl, and it's that girl, and it's that girl and it's that, that girl, and it's that girl. Some of y'all get around leaders in the way your mind has been trained to work. You start looking for reasons not to trust them. Oh, they were inconsistent there. I don't believe that that was true. You've heard it said that whatever you're looking for, you're likely going to see. The inverse of that is true, too. Whatever you're not looking for, you likely won't see. And some of us need to start devoting some of our perspective and our optics to looking at what the enemy might actually be doing in our lives. Because you're getting handed to you right now, and you have no idea where it's coming from and it's the enemy trying to distract you and destroy you, and you don't see it because you're not looking for it, be on alert. Number two, get your weapons ready. Get your weapons ready. Oh, I love what Nehemiah does. I told you, Nehemiah is a bad man. He's like, no, everybody get your swords. Everybody. If you're carrying materials, you carry with one hand, and in the other hand, you carry a sword. Even if you're building, you better have a sword and its sheath on your side. Everybody's carrying a sword. In the time that they were building, Nehemiah issued an edict nobody's to undress, which means for a good long while, nobody took a shower. That had to be a lot of fun. But the reason he said that is that in that moment, you become. Unavailable and vulnerable. Now, I know this is going to be vulnerable for a moment as a pastor. I know that when I come in here every day, there's some of you guys, especially our guys, who take this so seriously. Y'all even show up here with your guns, okay? You're like, I'm not going to let my family be vulnerable. Okay, this, I believe our church would be the worst church to try to do something, and people will be shooting at you from all over the place. I, wouldn't, I don't even want to be in the room when it happens. truth is though when we think about this the attack of the enemy we don't need guns Ephesians 6 when it lists out the armor of God only lists out one offensive weapon and that's take up the sword of the spirit which is the word of God Nehemiah arms his people with swords and God has armed you with the sword it's the word of God for far too many of us we got something going on in our lives. We know the enemy's coming, but we don't know how to fight back. And that Bible sits on our shelf, dusty and unopened. We keep trying to read a blog. Somebody tell me what to do. Watch a YouTube video. And the Word of God is the weapon that will work. But you've got to get the Word in you so that the Word can work for you. And that takes time and intentionality. Getting in the presence of God, in the Word of God, reading the Bible, studying the Bible, so that you are armed and equipped. You know what I love? Look at this at some time. Jesus, I didn't share this in the first service, but God, I think somebody needs to know this. Jesus was attacked by the enemy. Wandered into the wilderness, led actually into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. Forty days later, the enemy comes to attack him. And if you read the way that he responds, he uses verses from the span of two chapters. It's almost like he just did his devotion that morning. And God had armed him with what he needed for that day. Like you need to understand that God providentially wants to get His Word in you because it's the weapon that you fight the enemy with. And we've got to get it in us so that we can use it so that it will work for us. Get your weapon ready. Number three, don't stop the work. I love this. Some of you start making progress towards God, start working on your marriage, start being intentional with your kids, and all of a sudden you start experiencing the resistance of the enemy, and your move is to say, and I'm backing up. We got to stop going to church. Tired of serving. Nehemiah was not like that. He's like, we are not backing down. I mean, when they find out that the neighboring communities are planning to attack, in verse 14, look at what Nehemiah said. He said, then I looked things over and I told the leaders and the officials and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of your enemies. The Lord is great and fearsome, so think of him. And fight for your relatives, and your children, and your wives, and your homes. I mean, this is like a brave heart moment. Are you expecting like unsheath his sword, freedom? Right? I mean, he's saying, "Listen, we're not backing down." See, the enemy wants you to stop. To stop working on your marriage. To stop pursuing God. To stop growing. To stop staying clean. The enemy wants you to stop. Don't give him what he wants. Nehemiah's like, we're not stopping the work. We'll fight and work at the same time. And he does something that many of us have never done. Number four, he gets a plan paid attention, Nehemiah said, we're going to blast the trumpet. Trumpeter, you stay with me. This wasn't just like, you know, like a bugle call and then everybody charge. It was strategic. Nehemiah's saying, listen, if there's ever an attack, I'm going to the attack. Trumpeter, you stay with me. You blow the trumpet when we get there. Everybody run to the trumpet and I will lead you into battle. Which begs the question, when you're under attack, where are you going to turn? For too many of us, I've come to understand this. I told our staff this, and they loved it, so I guess I have to share it with you all. Too many times we run to the phone instead of running to the throne. We call our best friend or that mentor, or we Google it instead of getting on our knees and being in front of God. When your marriage is attacked, when your kids are under attack, when your business is being attacked, when your health is being attacked, where do you turn? What's your plan? Moses, who experienced a plethora of attack, wrote Psalm chapter 91. In the second verse, he said this, "I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge." And my fortress, my God in whom I trust. What Moses was saying is when there's something that goes wrong, I got a plan. I know where I'm going to run. I'm running to God because he is my fortress. He's the one who keeps me safe. He's the one that I trust. Now last week, I pointed out that Nehemiah, as the work gets started, gives God credit for the favor that he had with the king. There's something in this moment you need to see about Nehemiah. Nehemiah is not scared of the enemy because he knows who sent him. I know God put me here. I know that I'm doing God's work. And so I'm not scared of you. No matter who you are or what you say you're going to do to me. The truth is, you have an enemy. And out of that, in this world, there is a promise There will be trouble, but there's a but God with that. In John 16, Jesus said, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Jesus has won the war. We fight the war from a place of victory. If you want to take ground from the enemy, you're going to have to fight for it. That's why this fall we're opening our downtown campus you look around, there's just not room to squeeze more people in. Our vision is to make it hard for somebody in Albemarle to go to hell. We want to see heaven populated and hell plundered in this city. We want people who are far away from God, like many of you have experienced here, to experience His grace, to experience His love, His mercy, and to be reconciled into a relationship with God. Because we know that that battle is real. And there's an enemy that has a plot to destroy lives, but we believe God has a plan. So you might be asking, what can I do? Number one, just like Nehemiah, be on guard. Look out. The enemy's gonna tempt you in your heart to become bitter, to become dissatisfied, to wander, to make good things, God things. Be on guard. Number two, get your weapons ready. Get into the word of God. I mean, if all you can give God is five minutes, give Him five minutes. Get into the Bible. Make a promise to Him. God, I'm going to get Your Word in me because I want Your Word to work for me. And then don't stop the work. Don't stop the work. If you're working on your marriage, you're working on your heart, you're working on your kids, you're working to get your family in church, don't stop the work. There are lives at stake. And I don't want the enemy to get what he wants. He wants us to back down. We're not going to. Maybe for some of you, the reality is that right now you feel God leading you. I want to do something. Maybe it's time to get involved. It's time to start serving. On our connection card, which is in your worship guide, maybe today you need to check. Hey, I'm going to put my name and my, my phone number. I'm interested in volunteering. I, I need to get involved. I need to help. And Maybe today there's some of us that are here that